0: plants and herbs have been used in my family for generations but uh, because i also believe they can be revolutionary in our lives and when people realize they have a relationship with they've been having a relationship with them for centuries that there's an opening and uh, a sense of empowerment that happens to people when you realize you have all these alleys, right? You don't feel alone at all when you're studying them. I've been very interested in how plants help our lives and how there is creative work as well by channeling creativity toward building networks of care and how we can provide free plant-based care in different situations from natural birth control to our... um, menstruation cycles connected with the moon cycles, how fungi worlds have been having these interconnections with uh, humans and other species for so long. So I was really aware that when you create a space for healing, being that education or, or social action, I believe that gives you a sense of how you can share that with people around you as well. Part of the work with herbs and plants is also just having people to realize that we come from somewhere and that we all have stories of displacement from our ancestors. But these species also have these kinds of stories, the places they have been traveling from and or to and the uses they had in many lives. So I believe that this Parasite plant human relationships that I was exploring in some of my art projects and how we have thought of our own bodies in nature, living with them, was something that interested me. In Nets of Project, I really wanted to uh, give visibility to very obscured moments in, in society, but also across centuries, which is very much the way in which ergo, was being transformed and used, and being the cause of like mass epidemics in the world by contaminating not only plantations, but also people with hallucinations and gangrene, which is the case of ergotism. But what I really wanted to bring was also this knowledge of women using ergo in small doses to help other women with abortions and to treat bleeding after giving birth, but also how midwives and healers' expertise was rooted in this experience of the land and plants, which was pretty much destroyed with the the rise of capitalism and the progress of patriarchal capitalism being replaced by modern obstetrics and uh, pharmaceutics. This ergo fungus was very important for me because I also wanted to bring stories that were lying in the gaps of the plantation somehow, like this sort of hidden, obscured stories that were also invisible in the gaps of history, right? And how all these different bodies became invisible as well with the eruption of men in their health and medical systems. By destroying the folk remedies and pushing away the role of midwives, healers and witches from their social and communal lives, I was also uh, interested to create a rhizomatic structure of narratives that could cross events between Portugal, Spain and Norway, where the project was focused so the voices we hear in this project are the voices of ergo of ripe plants and women across time
1: that was diana policarpo and i am igor ramirez and i am very happy to be back with you diana is our first artist on the second season of stage and just a quick reminder of what we stand for With this podcast series, we want to create a space for artists, thinkers, scientists, trailblazers to share their ideas. But above all, we want to inspire you to think through the lens of art about the issues we're bringing to the table. We have been working really hard in the past months to bring you new episodes with a slightly different format, but always focusing on the wider topic our artists are addressing in the work. So without further ado, let us dig deeper into the universe of Diana. I have learned a lot thanks to her, to the way she manages to connect women's historic struggle for justice going all the way back to the witch hunts and drawing parallels to the issue of abortion rights today. And at the heart of the story, we find a very unexpected player, a fungi. And this opens up a whole new world. I leave you with Katrin Elisa Pedersen. She is our guest host and will guide us through it. I hope you enjoy it.
2: Beside the more maybe typical pleasure and joy that can come from encounters with organic organisms, plants, herbs and fungi... I was not conscious the more entangled, complex and intertwined contact zones of coexistence between my body and natural environments in my upbringing. Being attentive to this is also crucial for the ongoing effort in the labour of freeing myself from the limiting and historical boundaries born out of colonial human-centric understandings of the world. Care is a huge part of this labour. Through always trying to acknowledge the more-than-human point of view, and also to understand how our history is not only our own, but how it has throughout time traveled across species and bodies. We can never know enough, and the shared point of view of the world can never be emptied or full. And for this, I'm grateful to all the extraordinary people that through their research and knowledge open our eyes and minds to all the stories that need something similar to a voice. In her latest work, the artist Diana Policarpo draws connections between women's struggles for justice from the witch trials in the 1600s, but also 1700s in some countries, to the abortion rights today. To looking at the specific role that the parasite fungi Claviceps has played throughout time, and the fungus cycle with the rye grain it infects, and how this plant is related to women's health, Diana shows how plants and herbs connect to reproductive justice and health to our bodies, how this knowledge historically has been part of alternative knowledge system based on land. These knowledge systems have been undermined and repressed, labeled as alternative medicine and lost due to Western scientific medicine. In this line of research, Diana considers contemporary feminist biohacking practice in parallel with historical alternative medicines known and used by women and indigenous people in various geographies. How to recuperate this knowledge and history, and where do we stand today? In this podcast, we will touch upon topics related to queer ecology and botanical ancestral knowledge, and do-it-yourself medicine versus industrial pharmacology. Our first guest is the feminist theorist Debelina Roy, who is a professor of neuroscience and behavioral biology and women, gender, and sexuality studies at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia in USA. She's also the dean of faculty for Emory College of Arts and Sciences. True Roy will get an insight in the current status of women's struggles for reproductive justice and health, and also in how she sees that feminist practices can and does contribute to scientific inquiry in the lab and cl- clinical research. So welcome, I'm so happy you're here with us today. So I would just begin now and ask my first question. So can you tell me about the imbalances and sex biases in clinical research that you see today in relation to women's reproductive health?
3: Yeah, you know, that's a, it's a really great question because there's two kinds of imbalances. In in some way there's been um Nothing but research around reproduction when it comes to women and female bodies. It's as if women's bodies have only been articulated or understood through their reproductive capacity. So too much attention on reproduction and not on other, you know, factors. So for example, that kind of mode of research has led to um, the development, you know, first the clinical trials and the development of drugs that do not take into account, you know, women's biology, their hormones, or their, their size, or their weight, or their height. And you know, you have such drugs where, you know, it might be okay for a standard six foot 35 year old male to take a dose. But that is an overdose of a certain drug for the, you know, a typical woman's or, or female anatomy. On the other side of it, you're asking also about reproductive just uh, reproductive health, and there has not been enough research in terms of reproductive health. and And the exact example that I'm going to give you is that although you know so much of the scientific kind of inquiry around uh, reproduction uh, has happened in women's bodies, it's been about control. It's been about controlling that reproductive function through, let's say, contraceptives. Uh, through hormone replacement therapy. And in many cases, these are medical interventions and hormonal interventions that we want. We don't want to get rid of hormonal uh, contraception. But at the same time, it's not looked into other questions around reproductive health enough. And so, for example, in my own um, PhD research, the question that I posed was, what if you know the ovaries were not the only place where uh, a hormonal contraceptive was interacting? What if it was acting at other parts of the body? And it turns out that in fact, you know something like melatonin, which if you use at high enough doses, can in fact shut you know kind of decrease the amount of hormonal messaging that happens in the brain. So you can have, in fact, um, all kinds of systemic effects. And we don't ask these kinds of questions enough. So there is a focus on reproductive health, but there is a bias towards which kind of questions get asked, what kind of research gets done, and not enough of the other.
2: You are interested in developing feminist practices that contribute to scientific inquiry in the lab. So your research project, The Core Production of Knowledge by Reproductive Justice Advocates and Molecular Biologists, can be seen as a great example of such feminist practice. Can you tell me about the research of this project and what you found out?
3: Yeah, so it actually relates to your first question. So, you know, I was really curious to, to see like, those questions that weren't being asked. What would if we were to bring the people who asked those questions into the foreground, at the center? to be able to ask those questions and then start our scientific inquiries. So, you know, the project was really this beginning point to create a conversation between different groups of knowers. Uh, So reproductive health and reproductive justice advocates, such as the ones that, you know, i partnered with um, who are through SisterSong, who are through Spark um, here in Atlanta, they know, they have knowledge about reproductive health. And um, so I wanted to raise the importance of that knowledge base and bring it into conversation with scientists who are open to thinking about reproduction in this more expansive way and reproductive health. And so the scientists who I partnered with, they are reproductive neuroendocrinologists who are working at the molecular level, who they themselves have questioned this kind of binary distinction between XX females and XY males, right? They uh, don't see it as this kind of closed loop of information of from chromosomes to hormones to reproduction. They actually are open, for example, to the environment, to epigenetics, influencing what we think of as our, as not only sex differences, but what might also think about sexual difference in our bodies. So this was a, a chance to bring these kind of different bodies of knowers and stakeholders in this uh, you know area of reproductive health and women's reproductive health, and create some um, spaces for joint conversation. So what uh, you know, if you go onto the website for the project, you can see there's like a map that we created of of shared vocabularies. And so this kind of work takes time. It really does take the skill set of being able to listen to and to hear different vocabularies, but then to see that there's a commonality behind where they're coming from or what kind of questions they're trying to pursue. And so that was the project to really highlight that uh, scientists and reproductive justice advocates can be on the same page and we can create science that is going to answer the questions that impacts the bodies of people who are most invested in this research. I
2: think that resonates so beautifully with also Diana's uh, artistic practice and the subject she chooses to research. In 2018, you published a book, Molecular Feminisms, Biology, Becomings and Life in the lab. In this feminist rethinking of scientific methods and techniques, you intertwine feminist theory with lessons learned from bacteria, subcloning and synthetic biology. What exactly is molecular feminism and which lessons can
3: be learned? Uh, It is a great question also. And um, I am drawn to molecular feminisms and that title, I used it for two reasons. You know, it was kind of a play on words. I use molecular in two ways. First of all, of course, It's meant to talk about molecular biology. I am a molecular biologist, so, you know, that's where my area of expertise is. But it's also to think about the molecular. And here I'm referring to the idea that um, the French philosophers, Deleuze and Guattari, use. They think about the molecular as opposed to the molar. And here they themselves are drawing on the field of chemistry. So in chemistry, when you have a molar amount of something. It is kind of the same molecule, but a a certain amount of it comes together to form an identity. The molecular for them is something that dissipates that entity. It it is not something that uh, becomes whole. It is something that is not fixed. So I use the molecular kind of in that sense as well. Uh, And this is because my research in molecular biology actually taught me the lesson. And I learned this lesson from bacteria, from the practices of subcloning, from doing research in synthetic biology. Even molecular bodies or molecular entities are not fixed. They're not stable. They're constantly changing. And in fact, you're not doing your job, I think, as a molecular biologist, if you're not open to thinking about molecular, the molecular, molecular biology as something that is changing. If you're not following signal transduction pathways, if you're not seeing what's happening to a molecule over time, you're not doing your work as a molecular biologist to understand that phenomenon. I, so I did do my training as a scientist, uh, but and it's the science that taught me this. It was the patient, I think, practices of being in the lab of doing these kind of experiments over and over again that brought me to this kind of worldview. And so, in the same sense where I've reached out to reproductive justice advocates and to molecular biologists to think about knowledge, this is where I guess I've also reached out to bacteria to learn from them. You know, that's how I see my orientation as a scientist. I come to know the world as the world changes me. <laughs> as I come to know it. And so bacteria changed me. The cells I work with changed me. You know, I had to work with uh, cells uh, and a type of neuronal cell line that had a different kind of, I had to follow the circadian rhythms of that cell line in order to do my research, which meant that I had to, for four years of my PhD research, I had to take samples from this in vitro cell line every six hours. So that means I was up every six hours. So I would do a time point at midnight and a time point at 6 a.m. Or a time point at 2 a.m. and a time point at 8 a.m. for four years. So these things had an impact on me as well. And so knowing that that taught me that these cells know something and I need to kind of learn that language. I need to kind of develop an understanding of what they're trying to tell me. So this is what the molecular feminisms is also about. I use the metaphor of grass and how grass grows in the book. And really, that is it's about a way of knowing. It's a way of connecting. It's about horizontal social movements um, and how you can kind of connect with different bodies of knowledge and different knowers, be they human or be they non-human. And that's how we're going to you know, go forward in our world making.
2: Yeah, no, that was great. And it also resonates uh, a lot in which subjects that uh, the artist Diana Polycarp uses to research. And also like what you said, like if you are touching something, it's also touching you. So like this dialogue that you're speaking of is really beautiful and crazy. The project where you followed the for four years.
3: Yeah, exactly. But boy, did it ever touch me back.
2: Biohacking and DEY medicine can be seen as an alternative to clinical and scientific medicine, as hacking technology and gender, as opening up spaces for the right to decide over one's own body. Our next guest is Morgan Mayer, sociologist and research director at CNRS, the French National Center for Scientific Research, and he will give us a closer insight into perspectives on biohacking through sharing his interest in the production of knowledge and technology outside the boundaries of scientific institutions. It's so great to have you here today, Morgan. Hello. Let us begin at the very beginning. What is biohacking and how do you see its role in connection to industrial pharmacology?
4: So biohacking, which is also sometimes called uh, do-it-yourself biology, is a movement that emerged around the year 2008. So the idea is um, to enable people to do biology outside of scientific institutions, and thus, in a sense, to open up biology to citizens. Uh, there are probably around 5,000, maybe a bit more people doing biohacking across the world. And, and these biohackers do all kinds of stuff. So they do things like extracting uh, DNA to do genetic testing, creating kits for fermentation, doing bio art, uh, organizing workshops and also fabricating uh, cheaper alternatives to standardized scientific equipment. While, while, while most projects do not have a direct link with the industry, there are some links to the pharmaceutical industry. So we sometimes see donations of old equipment, and we have also seen collaborations. Uh, for example, there is a collaboration between La Payasse, which is a biohacker space in Paris, and the company uh, Roche. And this collaboration was established to study large data sets on cancer. But I would say that most projects are made in a position to in, in industrial pharmacology. Um, we can name a few projects like the Open Incident Project. Um, but also projects like the development of an auto-injector of adrenaline, which was developed by a collective that was outraged by the price of existing products on, on the market. So are there are different kinds of projects, and, and there are collaborations, but there is also opposition and demarcation between biohacking and, uh, and industry and big value.
2: In Europe, the expertise of midwives and what is now coined as alternative medicine. I had a central role before medical science gained dominance in the 16th and 17th hundreds. How do you see biohacking or DUI medicine as a way, as a promise, to domesticate and democratize science? And what practically does this entail?
4: Yes, the, the idea of biohacking uh, and, and do-it-yourself medicine is really to open up biology in, in different senses of, of the word opening up. So on a spatial level, uh, we have seen the establishment of new community labs. Um, There are today around 60 such community labs across the world in cities like uh, New York, Paris, London, or Barcelona. And this opening up also happens on a more technical and economic level um, by developing alternative equipment that are much cheaper than traditional tools that scientists use in their labs. So we have seen alternative microscopes, alternative uh, PCR machines, alternative centrifuges being developed, for example. And also we can say that this democratization is uh, social and political um, in that biohacking movement wants to be open to all kinds of people and no matter if they have a scientific degree or not. And the idea is to embrace principles such as openness, decentralization, and the sharing of knowledge.
2: Do you see then biohacking and do-it-yourself medicine as a form of activism?
4: I would say yes and no. in In some spaces, um, we see biohacking being done in a, in a rather traditional way. So um, there is collaboration with uh, scientists. People work on projects that are that sometimes lead to scientific publications, etc. And and there is maybe not a very strong political stance, uh, just the, the idea, the principle that biology should be opened up to, for example, school classes, etc. cetera. But then in other, on the other hand, on, in other places, you see people um, making more strong political arguments, saying that there needs to be a counter power, that people need to have the knowledge, the access to biology, to be able to understand the environment, their bodies, their diseases, etc. I think if you look at it historically, you could see also maybe a transformation of movement. Originally it was a bit more radical, a bit more countercultural. And nowadays you see uh, the creation of startups, you see a certain professionalization of the of the field. Maybe it is less alternative now than it used to be in the beginnings around two thousand eight, nine and ten.
2: From an anthropologic perspective, our next guest will guide us through the, how the practices of herbalists in a U.S. context offer cultural healing and works with ethics of care and maybe also reformulate definition of what a body, a plant, and ecology is and can do. Carrie Spoke is a community organizer, herbalist, and anthropologist. With a focus on medicine, environment, healing, and religion, Volk works towards bringing multiple perspectives on social justice and healing into all aspects of her work. So hey, Carys.
5: Hi, Katyn. It's lovely to be here.
2: Yeah, so nice to have you here. So one thing that is important to you is to move collectively together with people with practices of cultural healing and ethics of care. i I'm super interested to hear more about the practices you're thinking of here and how cultural healing and ethics of care are performed. Your research for your doctoral work, Ecologies of Friendship, Learning North American Practices of Care with Western Herbalists in Cultural Anthropology at Cornell University from 2018 is very relevant here. Can you tell me about how the herbalists in Vermont, USA, and through their practice, promote and perform new forms of care, what the term obligate ecologies entails?
5: Sure. Uh, thank you. This is a really great question. So, the herbalists that I work with in the Northeast of the United States are primarily white, and a lot of folks working in rural communities but also some in urban ones. And I just want to name the fact that these, the practices of care that people are learning and teaching in the context of my field site are not, in fact, new. They are rooted in the wisdom and the practices and knowledge that Indigenous communities on this continent have held for millennia, as well as Indigenous knowledges from other places. What's happening now and the forms of care that are being taught among these the communities that I work with, connecting directly with plants and starting to embody oneself as a part of nature through that connection with plants and connection with place uh, is a direct outgrowth of learning from Indigenous communities over time. Though that connection is not always as acknowledged as it could be. So uh, what the forms of care are that I identify in my research, it's about practices of attuning oneself to one's surroundings or to a particular plant. Not just what does it look like, but what does it smell like? What does it taste like? What kinds of other sensations come up in the body when one drinks a tea or tastes a tincture made of that plant? So for instance, a ginger tea is spicy and warming, and creates sensations of movement in the body. And everyone experiences that slightly differently. But what the herbalists that I have worked with are trying to teach is that care can come out of tuning our attention more closely to what plants are in their wholeness, rather than just seeing them as resources to be used. And to your question about obligate ecologies, this is a phrase that one of my teachers used to surface, to unearth the ways that humans are always already in deep relationship with the plants and the soil and the air and the water around us. There is no outside. And so an obligate ecology is the ecology, the world, the networks that we are connected to without an option there's no uh, there's no option to be outside of that and therefore ideally we are in an obligated relationship with those ecologies and with the beings in them we are obligated to be responsible with them
2: um, and how do you see western herbalism as an alternative to biomedicine and how does this connect to understanding how bot- botanical remedies moved out of the
5: realm of everyday medical practice first western herbalism as a term is already a sort of coalition of different medical practices that came together in mostly the United States based on indigenous knowledges from this continent, from Europe, from South Asia, from East Asia, from all the places from which colonists gathered knowledge about working with plants. So just to name the fact that Western herbalism is already hybrid, And the next point about that is that people have been working with plants as healing and uh, relational beings for millennia. So it's actually biomedicine that's new. And so I think using the word alternative to describe plant remedies doesn't do service to the power of plants and the power of people's relationship to plants over the millennia. Plants have been used in Everything from helping a child's upset stomach to terminating pregnancies uh, among women that had been enslaved in the Caribbean and in the south of the United States. Plants have an incredible power and, and they continue to, whether or not that power is recognized by the systems of medicine that are now politically dominant.
2: So my last question is, uh, how does herbalist reformulate the definition of what a body, a plant, and an ecology is and can do?
5: Another great question. And uh, as there are many different ways to be an herbalist, there are also many different ways to answer this question. So I don't want to, well, with all of my responses, I want to be clear that I'm not representing all herbalists, just my little slice of research and practice with herbalism. But what I've learned is that. More importantly than thinking about bodies as individuals with dividable parts inside them to which we can apply medical knowledge, bodies are themselves uh, networks, systems, ecologies, if you will. Plants are also networks and systems, not individuals. And the relationship between bodies and plants or bodies, and in this case, fungi, is itself also networked and not linear. So each person's body will have a different response, a different reaction to a plant remedy um, within a certain set of bounds. But like I was saying about ginger, some people really love the warming, stimulating, stomach calming capacities of ginger. And some people... Already start out pretty warm, and they find ginger to be too spicy. It's overstimulating, and so everyone responds differently to plants because all of us are complexly networked beings in relationship with plants, and um, and that plays out in how we, and how herbalists think about what an ecology is as well. And in fact, for myself, some of what I have learned through my work with herbalists about. My body and the bodies of folks I talk to and about plants has come through thinking through ecological metaphors and through connecting with the systems of waterways and soil and air that are immediately around me that, that literally help to form my body.
2: Three wonderful guests have guided us through different aspects of the landscapes found in Diana Polycarpo's latest project following what can be best understood as the voice of fungi, grain and female and female identified bodies. I come to know the world as the world changes me, as I come to know it, The Bolina Roy so beautifully put it. She said it is a way of knowing, of connecting, about horizontal movements and about connecting to different bodies and knowers, both human and more than human. Trained as a molecular biologist, she was speaking of how the endless hours in the lab Conducting research made her acknowledge the importance of how to be with the objects of research, the molecules, the bacteria, the microorganisms, and how these interactions happening at this molecular level are beyond you. As Polycarpo, Roy sees the importance in reaching out to different bodies. While these for Polycarpo maybe would be the bodies of historians, feminist trans biohackers, midwives, sound designers, and parasit fungi, for Roy, these bodies belong to reproductive justice advocates. Molecular biologists into bacteria. Here, thinking about knowledge and how it is produced and distributed is central. Morgan Mayer also showed us the importance of just that. A biohacking essentially emerged out of the motivation of enabling everyone to do biology outside of scientific institutions, to open up biology for all. I think that the principles that biohacking embraces mirror some of the most central aspects of polycarpus practice, openness, decentralization, and the sharing of knowledge. The herbalist and anthropologist Kairis Spoke discussed the hybrid foundation on history of Western herbalism, how it is based on decentralization, the sharing of knowledge and openness, although not always historically. Its legacy comes from indigenous knowledges, from all the places in which colonists gathered knowledge about working with plants. Boak highlighted the fact that biomedicine or industrial pharmacology historically is actually quite new. The power of plants and humans' relationship with them has lasted for over a millennia. And what is happening now within Western herbalism and the forms of care that they are teaching is direct outgrowth of learning from the indigenous communities over time. It was inspiring to hear both delve into what obligate ecologies are and how there actually doesn't exist any outside in our world on networks. Our guests today and the artists are all connected by the fact that they're all creating spaces for healing and advocating the right for everyone to do so.
1: Today's artist was Diana Policarbo. Our guest journalist was Katrin Elisa Pedersen. The editor-in-chief of Stage is Francesca Thiesen-Bornemisa. Carlos Surroth is the director of Thiesen-Bornemisa Art Contemporary. Solada Gutiérrez is her content curator. John Ranguren is her curatorial assistant. Our producers are Soledad and myself, Igor Ramírez García Peralta. Nina Esperanda is our project manager. This episode was edited by Ana Esteve. Our theme music is by Michael von Housewolf. Thank you for listening. <laughs>